Welcome to another episode of Between the Bites. My name is Derek Parkinson. My name is Gary Arnold. And I am James Fair. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Happy to be here. Another week, another round of cyber incidents. That's right. No, tell me it's not true. Even more. Even more. Uh. Yeah, today we're going to talk about a couple of cyber incidents and then also dive into some initiatives that Executech is taking that might be a good thing for other organizations to consider and look into on their end as well. Starting with, let's see, we'll we'll kick it off with uh, Gary's precious pixel. Sounds like a huge security risk now. <laughs> Why you got? Why you got to do me like that, man? Doesn't have an iPhone that's immune to. Oh, here know, all, we all go. <laughs> Revisiting of the iPhone Android debate. Apple, Apple is not immune to security risks. <laughs> yeah, I got this uh, lovely email. I don't know. It was like six, seven o'clock at night last night. I use Google Fi as my cell phone carrier. Which, for the record, no complaints. I enjoy it. They have great customer service. Service in general has been very solid. Of course, I am a bit of a Google fanboy. Hopefully that's not a surprise at this point if you're a frequent listener. But apparently Google Fi, suspicious activity relating to a third-party system that contains a limited amount of Google Fi customer data. So apparently, maybe not the Google database servers or whatever themselves, but as is very common with these types of breaches, some form of a third party or somebody accessed information, including phone number and technical information, but they don't have my name or any other personal stuff other than my phone number, which, you know, so as to the how or the, the why, there's no action to be taken on my part. And as far as the end user, and, I, you know, as we've discussed here before, I guess, props to Google for sending this notice. It seems very thorough and informative, which is, you know, we'll, we'll give them a shout out for that. I don't know, James, if you saw any readings, any other explanation or details on what the deal was here, but yeah, another breach, big company. Yeah, it appears just because the timing is so good, right? Right on the heels of T-Mobile breach. Now, I guess we should back up a little bit. Let's talk about Google Fi. So Google Fi is Google's cellular service, as Gary mentioned. But in order to not have to create their own entire infrastructure, they're leveraging both T-Mobile and US Cellular. Yes. So you know they're leveraging someone else's network. And it just seems really coincidental. The timing is just perfect that right after the T-Mobile hack, all of a sudden Google is saying, yeah, one of our third-party providers lost some information. Now, they are uh, a little bug board about the whole thing. So they're not pointing fingers or naming names. But most everyone is going, oh, come on. We know they use T-Mobile. T-Mobile gets breached. Suddenly, they're talking about information being released. So people are putting two and two together and coming up with maybe five. I don't know. But it's definitely looking like this is on the heels of the T-Mobile breach. I got some more specifics, not necessarily the how. I think we already talked about the T-Mobile breach last time. But it did include, so phone number, account status, SIM card serial number. That one, yeah. information related to details about customers' mobile service plan. So what, you know, what plan you're using. And then whether you have like unlimited SMS or international turned on, that kind of a thing. They did not get payment card data, passwords, pins, or anything like that. They didn't get they didn't get the contents of text messages or they didn't get phone call records. So it's better. Uh, however, the the SIM card serial number thing, that's a little yikes. So if someone were on that and an attacker wanted to go after you, that would be the perfect way to do it. You do a SIM card swap attack on these folks. You create a SIM card with that same serial number. And now you've got their phone cloned to yours and you could start doing things like text, text messages to get the MFA and those kind of things. So I noticed one Reddit user said, yeah, it happened to me. My phone got cloned, SIM card hacked. 
And for two hours, they were down. Uh, in that time, Google got it back and then sent them a message that said, you know, in that time, someone could have certainly launched text messages and resets and those kind of things. So it does say no action required on your part. You know, you read that. I have to wonder if it wouldn't be prudent for people who are subjected to this attack to reach out to their provider and say, hey, I'd like a new SIM card, please. One that, is, you know, the serial number isn't tracked or known so you could just avoid this not that any of us are big targets and maybe the person read it was or maybe they just claimed it i don't know you know there's no necessarily verification of what goes on on reddit but if it were me i'm a little on the paranoid side right i don't want some getting my information or stealing my phone not that it can't be done anyway but i would call them up and say hey i'd like a new sim card serial number you know a new sim card i think that would be an appropriate response well, and the nice thing and unique thing that I found being on Fi is that my SIM card is virtual. Mm. There, there is not a physical card SIM card that I've right. ever had to use. Yeah, so it should be really easy for them to swap it out, right? Why they aren't doing that automatically, I don't know. Maybe it's an admission of guilt in courts if they do that kind of thing. But I would certainly, if it were me and I were on that network, I would certainly reach out. So you said you like the service. It's supposed to be really ultra low cost. Has that been your experience? Cheaper than we were at AT AT&T at one point, Verizon at one point, and we landed on this one because I was liking the Pixel. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, this carrier, this option also is very affordable for the way that we use data. So It has to be an Android phone, I assume? It does have to be an Android phone. Okay, cool. But they'll buy your iPhone from you. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's a great alternative for those who don't want to use, you know, the big three. If you're you're kind of leery of Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, this is an alternative. I'm a huge fan of Google, no doubt about it. But as we've seen in the past, and here we are again, no matter how great you are, if your third party that you're using isn't secure, you're going to run into trouble for sure. Yeah. The other door it opens is adding validity to any phishing or social engineering texts that come out. Verizon especially will text their users if there's a potential to update a plan. You know, I back when I was with Verizon a few years ago, they sent out a text and it said upgrade to unlimited X, Y, and Z for free. Just reply yes or something like that. And it was actually Verizon. It makes it really easy to tweak or alter your plan or lower your bill. Still, Verizon is ungodly expensive, but whatever. But those texts can also be phishing attempts. So if they have information on your exact plan, then it has just they can add some perceived validity to whatever phishing attempt they're making, you know, click this link, update your plan, enter in your information sort of a deal. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah. I have no doubt that's coming for these folks, undeniably. Oh, yeah. They still got a nice big list of phone numbers to send whatever they want to. I have to say, as a former Verizon user, my wife's on Verizon, we pay the extra to get it. The cell service, the coverage, man, at least here in the U.S., it is way way better we go to my mom's house in rural idaho and i gotta walk to a certain place outside to get a phone call works great for my wife anywhere we are so um, i haven't used t-mobile but compared to at&t certainly the coverage is absolutely better uh there's just there's a reason you pay that that additional dollar for sure or 20 or 40 or 60 (laughs) yeah they they operate on different slightly different wavelengths which makes a pretty big difference if you live in a city or if you live out in the open it is pretty fascinating to see the difference between the carriers. And I'm of the complete belief that every carrier map that has ever been shown in a commercial is a steadfast lie. <laughs> I call ball crap on that. AT&T's got to be one of the worst. Their coverage map never really changed, even though they bought Singular and then they bought 
one other company and they kept buying new towers and everything, but their coverage map never changed. It was always just as great as it claims to be today. Nice. It's a complete lie. <laughs> so I will say that I did try, we saw an ad for the Verizon internet plan and I am just not thrilled with Xfinity. I get great download speeds. My upload is terrible. So we do these kind of podcasts and stuff, right? It's awful. And I'm always the one where we all wait while my upload goes and everybody else runs away. And here I am from their hour waiting for my upload to finish. I've got, you know, 400 down and five up. So anyway, I derail here. So we decided to try the Verizon thing out. And my wife went and got the router and I plugged it in and I got 40 megs. I'm like, well, that's weird. So I went somewhere else in the house and I got 32 and I went somewhere else and I got 25 and I went somewhere else. I went all over my house. I tried to like eight different places in my house. It never got above like 42 megs. And I'm like, this is worse than the Xfinity, this isn't any better. What is going on? And they're claiming like great speeds. And I was looking forward to having an alternative. Ping time was a little long, so I wouldn't want to necessarily do like, you know, FPS gaming on it over the internet. But for our applications, I thought it would be okay. And it was worth a try. And anyway, so I struggled with this thing. And then I realized, well, maybe my inter- my antivirus is capping it or something. So I turned that off and tried. I tried my wife's machine. Similar results everywhere. And anyway, she finally got on the phone with them. And they're like, oh, where do you live? And she told them. And and they're like, oh yeah, you're not in a in an LTE area. Sorry, you're you're in the up on the hill where you guys live. It's not in the right area for this. And that is not what it was pitched to us, right? When the salesperson called, it was like, you can get crazy amounts of bandwidth for not very much money. We're like, yes, please give us more bandwidth because we are we are chomping it a bit up here to get get rid of this five meg up thing. And anyway, it did not work out. So I'm back to Xfinity. Yeah, and I've, I've been spoiled for forever. Despite living in the middle of nowhere, I have fiber. So, oh, gosh, so <laughs> jealous. Google Fiber has threatened to come to Sandy, Utah for a year now. And I don't know, maybe they're in the, in the multi tenant dwellings, but they certainly are not up here. I've never seen a truck, I've never seen them run fiber. It's been quite disappointing. All right. Well, let's dive into some initiatives, some things that Executech is focusing on this year. One of the first ones that uh, we've talked about internally and have seen coming out of the gates pretty early on is getting rid of browser saved passwords. Why are you doing that to us, James? <laughs> just just to be cruel and mean. But definitely got some <laughs> feedback, Gary, amongst them. He, he was kind of, he's like, what are you doing to me? I've got all sorts of stuff saved in here. And, you know, it, change is tough. There's no doubt. People get into a habit or a routine and to say you can no longer use that routine is disruptive. And people are like, well, now what am I supposed to use? And I got to change my habits. And it, it's not easy for people, agreed. So yeah, we are disabling browser password managers internally. So all your you know, Chrome, Firefox, Edge, all your major browsers. That is being blocked. I think we're starting it next week. It's just, it's a really unsafe practice. Browsers do a great job. First of all, it's really handy, right? I can sync my browser and my passwords are there. All my tabs are there. It's, it's just super easy to do no matter where I go. That can also have some potential repercussions. If I go to a machine, a friend's house, my parents' machine, whatever, and I log in and it syncs up my passwords, now all those passwords that we use at work are now saved on that machine as well in a place. And it is encrypted. However, in order for you to be able to access it, it has to unencrypt it at some point. And the storage of that of those passwords is in a known place. All the browsers, you know, everyone's looked through these before, that password database is stored in a known place, as is the encryption key stored somewhere in memory. And I, I think I didn't talk about this a little on our last podcast, but I put together this little flash drive just as a test. And I found some reputable sources for password browser grabbers. 
Chrome, Firefox, Edge, Opera, Safari, not Opera, IE, all had password attack tools that I was able to throw on this flash drive. I run one batch file, all right, double click, and it doesn't, nothing shows on the screen. And I got this export of all the passwords. And I ran this on my wife's laptop because I know I'm still, she's still trying to move over to uh, LastPass and away from <laughs> the browser-based passwords, which she loves as well, which she was not happy when I told her she had to get rid of them. And yeah, it pulled them all down. There was like 450 passwords. Some of them were mine because I'd logged into her machine before, all our banking, all of our health information. And it was a little intimidating. Now, I did have to turn off our antivirus in order to just to make the flash drive. I had to turn off her antivirus in order to run the thing because it knew all those tools and it was going to block them, that's for sure. But that was some known software that's already been out there for a while, right, by a reputable source. If I were a, a real attacker, I'd invent my own or you know come up with my own code and rewrite it. So it wasn't a known signature. So that's number one worry. Number two worry is if someone came across a flash drive on their desk one day when they came to the office, they'd be like, oh, what's that? And you know, there's only one way to plug it. It's find out, right? We plug it in to see what's on that thing. And you can execute programs. Now, Windows has done a great job of blocking that, but there are ways to execute a program when you plug in a flash drive. So it's possible that you plug in the flash drive, it goes, grabs all those browser passwords and either stores them on the flash drive or uploads them to some malicious site out there. And it is also possible to get those by going to a specially crafted malicious website. If someone clicked on the wrong thing and then fired off executable, you know, from a website, you could also get the, get those passwords that way. So it's just not a great practice. They are super convenient, I know, and they do a great great job of doing it. But these days, it's just not secure. Attackers know this, and they're going after those things. So first initiative is turn off browser-safe passwords and push everyone to... It doesn't have to be LastPass necessarily, but some you know reputable password manager of some kind that isn't a browser. That's what we're asking everybody to use. And in the case of Gary and myself, for instance, I let him know that, hey, what I do is I run two different browsers, one for work, one for personal. I run LastPass for, for business on one. I run LastPass for families on the other. So I'm able to keep password managers and I don't have to use the browser-based passwords. That was a long answer, gotcha. but there you go. And, go ahead, Gary. you know, browsers being browsers. I did try that for a while, but cookies on edge got a little hairy and some websites weren't loading. But anyway, I guess uh, a follow-up question, James, do you anticipate, given that that is such a hole, such a vulnerability, when it comes to passwords and browsers, do you see these browsers upping their game and deciding to approach password saving differently, uh, even more of a built-in LastPass in Chrome or, or what have you? Or and if they and, and I feel like they should have moved on that already, and they're not. Right. I mean, I, that's a good question. I would think that they would. You know, anytime you see someone else, it's like Microsoft sees someone else doing something better than they do, and they go, "Oh, we're going to either buy them or recreate our own version of it." So I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that in Edge. They're doing it now, and yet we're able to get the passwords. So it did, you know, it did require physical access to the machine, right? But that's not always going to be the case. So that's a fair question. I don't know if I have a good answer to it. To me, it's like, if they were able to do that, why aren't they doing it already? Well, that was kind of the devil's advocate, the thought that I had. And, and you've explained it a little bit more. So now I, I do see that the browser-shaved passwords on a one-to-one -one basis are much more vulnerable than a password manager. But on a mass scale basis, you know, LastPass, of course, has had its problems very recently. Google passwords haven't had some massive breach where, you know, millions of accounts were stolen with all their password information. True. That was my devil's advocate thought there. But on a one-to-one, -one, LastPass is a lot harder to get into with, you know, like a flash drive basically than, of course, any of the browser-safe stuff. 
yeah, I've got separate credentials. I've got MFA turned on on that. You don't have MFA turned on for your browser, right? You just pull it up and there it goes. Yep. Interesting. All right, James, what else do we have in the queue for 2023 for security? Yeah. So some of the other roadmap items we're doing. So first of all, we've created a security roadmap. I've done my best to share that with the group so everyone knows what's coming. We put it on our internet site so people can see. I don't know if people actually go and look and go, oh, what's coming next? But it's out there if anyone wishes to. So I'm trying to minimize the change impact of this and try to make it as a little invasive as possible. Uh, we'll see how successful I am as time goes on. But next on the list is ensuring that all the applications we use out there are what we call SSO enabled. So single sign-on. We've got, you know, we're a big Microsoft shop. Everyone's in Microsoft 365. We have a lot of uh, conditional access policies in place. So like if you logged in from Salt Lake City, and then an hour later you logged in from Georgia, it would send off an alert that said, ah, ah there's no way he moved that fast. So we're going to block that login. We've got geo blocking in place. You try to log in from known attack countries, uh, it'll be blocked. So we have a lot of a lot of security measures in place in Office 365 that we may not in other applications. So rather than doing that, what we do is we tie the login to our 365 application. So rather than having separate credentials, we say you log in with your Office 365 credentials and you're in. So it makes it easier. It's actually easier for the user. So rather than having separate credentials you have to worry about, you click on login SSO, it checks to make sure you're already logged in in Office 365. If you are, bam, you're right in. Much easier. No MFA, no, you know, and we keep track of all those logins that way. So trying to SSO enable every application that allows us to do that, that's definitely high on our list for this year. So one thing I hear for, for any organization out there who's looking to implement security initiatives, you need a team of a one or two people with some pretty thick skin and a strong smile because it does not matter what you change. Change is scary and people don't like it. You will hear things. Oh, man. But in the long run, people get over it. <laughs> I did some you know initiatives last year and it was definitely... I felt like I was being perceived as a bad guy quite often, right? People would kind of lash out about stuff. And, you know, I would just try to remind them that this is for the good in the long run. And if we were to get breached, it wouldn't be just us. It would be all the customers we take care of as well. And there's some, you know, massive hits to, to reputation, to other, to other potential businesses. We take care of municipalities and infrastructure companies and that kind of thing. So, you know, try to keep the, the big picture in mind as we move forward. But yeah, there is no doubt people get quite irate. You take away something they had. I like that you've started uh, rotating the bearer of the news between you and a couple of other members of our security team. You all get to take your rounds being the beating stick for a minute. And then, you know. It's back to me now, though. So it's been officially handed <laughs> off to me. So, yeah. So I've tried to improve communication and visibility to try to minimize the impact of, of being the bad guy. But I, I'll be honest, it is a concern. I consider myself a pretty nice guy. I get along with everybody. So to be on the other end of that, which is like, ah, it's that jerk who took away all of our access. That's not easy for me. <laughs> if it were me, I would take Google's approach with their MFA. I'd just pull the trigger on all the changes and let people find out one morning when they try to log in. <laughs> And there was a perception that that was going on. One of the reasons I'm I'm in the role again, or in that role now, is that I've been asked to kind of streamline communications and and the process a bit to try to because there was a feel that that kind of stuff was going on. People were just like, "Ah, we don't like this. Turn it off." And then everyone's like, "What happened?" 
So I don't know if that was true or people just aren't reading the email because it was you know, a rather lengthy email, but I'm doing my best to improve that process. And again, we'll, you know, ask me again next year this time. We'll see how well I did. That was very <laughs> delicate and PC. What Thanks. James is saying is I'll be here. Uh, what is it? The anger translator is you have to beat people over the head with notifications if you want them to pay attention to anything and not get mad. You know, how dare you change something, James, without telling me. Right. I ignore seven of your emails, but still you should have told me. <laughs> and the day the day after goes into effect is when they start calling. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We need to build some feature that is like, we know that you've read an email. Like you need to acknowledge that you have read this email or else like it just now, 365 has a has a, a app plugin you can use that called Inside or something like that, that you can turn it on before you send the email, and it will let you know like percentage of people that opened it, percentage of people that you know, left it open, that kind of a thing, or clicked on your link. Like, oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, what else? Do we have another one? Yeah, I got a couple more. I mean, keep going on the list. So next for us is moving to a mobile device management. So uh, cell phones that are company owned can be controlled. So right now we're using what's called MAM or mobile application management. So any Office 365 app, so your Word, Excel, Teams, right? It's actually opens, I get too technical here, but it opens inside of another program. And the other program, uh, so it looks like the same program. You open Word, it looks like Word. However, what's actually going on is there's what we call a wrapper over it. There's another program running over it and it prevents copying and pasting out of anything that's not 365. This is hard to believe, but again, this has caused some some consternation in the group because now I can't copy to my notes or I can't create a phone contact from my Office 360 from my Outlook, for instance. But the idea is that we're now going to prevent people from accidentally or intentionally or an attacker from doing it, copying customer data out of our environment and into something that's not secure. So that's mobile application manager, but it has some it has some challenges, right? If an application isn't in tune aware then it will also not be able to allow you to copy and paste out of it. So suddenly we have applications that people need or want to use that they can't copy data from. And that can be a problem. So the way to solve that is to just lock down the whole phone. We control the entire phone experience. We decide what application is going to be allowed or not allowed on there. That's mobile device management. And now because we're controlling the whole phone, now we can allow all applications to talk to each other without too, without too much worry about it. So uh, moving to an MDM, for those that have company issued cell phones probably on our radar sometime this year. What's next? Got time for one or two more. Okay. So I would say one thing we're worried, so we do acquisitions and mergers of other companies. So we want to make sure we're streamlining their security as well when they come on board, make sure they've got the proper appropriate things in place without being disruptive to their environment, right? They were an entire com- company by themselves until they joined us. So it's a, it's a bit of a delicate balancing act between ensuring folks are secure because now they're part of our group and yet not being severely disruptive, which we know has repercussions as we talked about. So a little doing some juggling act with the mergers and acquisitions. One of the big ones we want to look at, it's pretty easy to implement and doesn't is not so disruptive, are, I hate to get too detailed here, but look at a little technical. Throw us the acronyms. Here All right, we go. here we go. All right, there are three methods of ensuring email, get as little spam as possible. And those three are SPF, what we call DKIM or DKIM and DMARC or D-M-A-R-C. We can go down a rabbit hole here, so I don't want to get too down this rabbit hole, but these are... another episode, but yeah. (laughs) Another episode, sure. I'll explain these in another episode. All about email. Right. These are things we put in place to try to prevent spammers and phishing attempts. So SPF, for instance, 
that says, hey, any email from this domain, executech.com, for instance, that doesn't come from these IP addresses, and we list the IP addresses that we know it's going to come from, maybe a few others, like if we're using an application that sends email on our behalf, we have to be able to enter that IP address or that device, or that application as well. So we create a list and says, anything outside of that, probably not us, mark it as, as a phishing attempt. And then my job is to go in and look inside the quarantine and make sure we're balancing up appropriately what is getting through versus what's getting blocked. So a lot of companies these days, like Google, for instance, Gmail, will stop accepting your email unless you have several of these things in place. Unless you have SPF and DKIM in place, they're going to block your email. Everything will go to junk automatically. And that happened, I think, late last year. And there, all of a sudden, people were getting, hey, everything's going to junk. What's going on? And a whole bunch of you know organizations that were sending email had to jump on this bandwagon of improving the security of their of their email. So those are some of the tools we want to look at implementing at all mergers or acquisitions that we have along the way. Question on that, James. Uh, when it comes to these these email tools and or best practices, do you see these coming into play when it comes to cyber insurance? Are cyber insurance policies requiring this as a line item? Yeah, I don't. Off the top of my head, I don't recall seeing one. But if it's not already in place with some, I suspect it will be because it really does prevent a lot of the internal phishing, right? I can't send an email pretending to be Gary from my Gmail account or my Yahoo account without it getting blocked or tagged as spam or junk or phishing of some kind. And it's really pretty easy to implement. It doesn't require a great deal of technical knowledge. Some of, the, some of them get a, little, get a little wonky, but, and it doesn't impact anybody, right? For the most part, no one even knows I did it. So yeah, I absolutely see this as a requirement coming if it's not already here. So what I hear overall is consolidation is a big one, streamlining where we can. And then as a part of that consolidation, a little bit of out of necessity, forcing people's hands for lack of a better term to bring everything under a consistent format. For example, the passwords. Executech has offered LastPass to all of its employees as long as I've been here, and I'm sure a heck of a lot longer than that, that doesn't mean everybody's going to use it or they might create the account but never upload anything to it. <laughs> I, saw, I saw hands going up there. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> and that's, that's where the human error comes in. It's exactly things like that. That is the reason that human error is the number one issue when it comes to any security. doesn't matter how secure you are. If your individual employees are doing their own thing or accessing things in different ways and whatever it looks like, that's why human error is such a huge issue. So that seems to be quite a theme for 2023 is consolidation. And like I said, for lack of a better term, a bit more heavy handed of an approach because it's time to take it seriously because it is a serious issue. Yeah, I want to encourage organizations out there to take a similar path. You know, some of these things we're implementing are are technical, require a technical team to do so but are well worth it and move the security needle a long way. Leading by example. Exactly. We have to drink our own Kool-Aid. Right. We got time for one, one more. How about I share this little parting suggestion? And I mentioned it once before on one of our other podcasts, creating a risk register. So a lot of times we have so many security initiatives, we're not really sure where to spend our time, effort, and money. And it tends to jump around, right? Whatever is the most noisy at the time, that's what we go deal with. So instead, I want to encourage everyone to create a risk register of some kind. Start doing a risk analysis. And if you're not familiar with the process, then bring in a third party. We've got a security team that can do it. There's certainly plenty of others out there. But bring in somebody that's going to do an actual risk analysis. 
list all of the ways that you could be compromised or that you could get attacked and then put a likelihood of that and then put a severity if it did happen. And then from that, you can create a priority list of what you need to work on and how. So now you're tackling things in the biggest risk down to the least risk in a smart and you know efficient fashion rather than just trying to play whack-a-mole with everything that's coming up all the time. And because it's, it can be a really long list. So go at it with a methodical approach by creating a risk register of some kind. Risk analysis is, a, is really the way to go these days. Tagline, be methodical, don't play whack-a-mole. <laughs> Talking to Chet, one of the security engineers at Sophos, talked about something very similar. He says a lot of the shiny things that come up if you are playing that whack-a-mole game are oftentimes very device-specific, protecting your individual device. But if you look at the big picture and if you're focusing strictly on the device things and you're ignoring, say, things like your firewall over your server, it's a lot more time-consuming, a lot more technical to make sure that your big picture stuff, your servers and everything like that are protected than it is to focus on a device. When a device goes down, on average, he said it costs, the cap was like $5,000 as far as productivity lost, if you have to actually replace your device and all the work that goes into replacing or resetting passwords and things. If a server goes down, that average jumps up to upwards of a million dollars. And the hourly cost of a down server that shuts down an entire organization when you look at the lost workforce, not just the out-of-pocket paying a ransom if that's what you do or hiring an IT team if you don't already have one to have them come in and play damage control and all that. Every single hour that all of your employees aren't working, that it does. That's what shoots that average up to over a million dollars. So that's where the risk analysis definitely comes into play is the low-hanging fruit is important to be aware of, but it might not always be what you need to do today. There, there can be a lot of things. I think the one exception to that we can all agree is MFA. Turn on MFA. Turn on MFA <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I've in the past in other organizations, I have certainly justified some security budget by saying, yeah, it costs us how much per hour to be down, right? 50, you know, one place I worked, it was like $15,000 an hour. They had to calculate it down to the penny. And I said, we need a, a generator because if this goes down, the whole organization goes down. And, and they did an analysis, came back and said, nah, we don't need that. And it, I did not set it up, I swear. But two weeks later, a drunk driver drove into a power pole and took it down and they were down for 36 hours. And uh, the next day I had that chuck in my hand for that generator. <laughs> Be a statistic, folks. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't do it. <laughs> Trust your IT guy, he tells you something too. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> Well, James, thank you very much for laying out some of our initiatives. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up the episode on security in 2023? I think we covered it pretty well, right? Do, do a risk analysis, turn an MFA, and certainly look at implementing some of the things we talked about, turning on SSO. That one's a little more technical, but once you do it, it seems pretty straightforward. And please disable your password browser. Stop using password browsers, people. It's just too much of a risk. This goes for you know organizations and at home. Yeah, I know, Gary. Sorry, man. Just stop. Just stop doing it. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Absolutely. James, good luck with all the angry emails. <laughs> Wish you the best. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Be safe out there, folks. Bye-bye. See you.